0: Hi, this is Bonnie Bramlett, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast with your panties on. hey guys okay so today i chat with johnny Eccles, guitarist and founder of one of the greatest bands to come out of la in the 1960s and that band is love listening to johnny i felt like i was back on the sunset strip in 1965 i mean these guys were the darlings of la rock and they performed at all the hot venues on the strip and there were a ton of them at the time so as you'd expect He's got so many stories to share. And yes, we're going to talk about The Doors and Jim Morrison, but he's also going to talk about the making of their seminal album, Forever Changes. He's going to talk about his early days playing with Little Richard, meeting the Beatles, meeting Jimi Hendrix. There's a lot to cover. I felt so honored to get this time with Johnny, so I hope you enjoy our discussion as much as I did. All right, let's get started.
2: Johnny, thanks
1: Out of on. Why, well,
0: thanks that I You can me if
1: you want phone I
0: Now, I'm fascinated by your music and how you made such a big impact on the L.A. music scene and influenced so many bands around you. I mean, The Doors essentially wanted to be just like Love. But I even read, you know, Zeppelin and The Stones. They've referenced Love as an inspiration.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that is incredible, isn't it? You know, to think that so many people were influenced, people that we didn't even realize that were listening to us actually were influenced. But I knew the Stones were because a couple of our tunes, they kind of co-opted, actually three or four of them. So we, I was mm-hmm. kind of aware of that, yeah. The song Going Home, we did a song called John Lee Hooker or Revelation, which was they basically knocked it off. Even with the grunts and the guttural noises that we made, they did the same thing. But Mick had come to the whiskey and had asked me about the song and asked how it was playing a song Basically, the whole set, we would play one song and they cut it down to, I think, 15 minutes. But he was asking how the crowd liked it and the response and all of that. And I told him, yeah, everybody loved it. So um, about a month before our album was released, they did a version called Going Home, which, as I said, was basically a knockoff. Then they did a song called She Comes in Colors, which we had done. And uh, there are a couple others that I can't recall now. And Madonna has also co-opted some of our stuff from um, uh, the First Love album, and she finally ended up giving us writers' credit because it was a blatant knockoff. Wow!
0: But I mean, you have to be flattered.
1: Yeah, I'm flattered as long (laughs) as it doesn't affect our bank accounts. (laughs) I'm flattered.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. The flattery only goes so far.
1: That's correct.
0: (laughs) Well. Let's go back. I want to go back to the beginning here because, I, well before love and when you guys were kids, because I know that you and Arthur Lee, the lead singer, were childhood friends in Memphis. Is that right? Correct.
1: Yes, yes. Actually, our families were friends before our parents were even born. So our families go back together a long way. And my, our grandparents were school teachers. Arthur's and mine, and then uh, his mother, as well as my mother, and my daughter also is a school teacher. So we were a family of teachers. I was like four years old, I think, when we met. And um, Arthur's a couple years older than I am. So he's like my big brother my whole life.
0: Wow. Yeah. Wow. So where did the the inclination to start playing music even come from then?
1: Well, I um, played with Billy Preston and I went to junior high school and high school together. And we started a group. um, We were playing bar mitzvahs and weddings, funerals, whatever. And so we were getting a lot of attention and Arthur saw that. Now he had been taking accordion lessons since he was a kid. <laughs> so he uh, they didn't have keyboards back then, that you know, portable keyboards, you had to have a full-size organ or piano. So his parents brought him one of those uh, or kind of living room organs. And he started playing that. And uh, when Billy left to pursue his gospel career, uh, and Henry Vestina, the Canned Heat, was also in that group. So we had a, a pretty, pretty hot group. And uh, Arthur joined and took uh, Billy's place. And it went from there.
0: And how old were you at this point?
1: About 14, 15.
0: About 14 or 15. And you, though, had, I, I had read somewhere that you had taken lessons, guitar lessons from, and maybe this is true or not true, Adolf Jacobs?
1: Yes, from, from, the, from coasters? the Coasters, yes. Yes, he was my first teacher, so... Uh, He lived in the neighborhood and he saw me walking with my student guitar and he just said, this is a piece of crap. So he hooked me up with a a professional guitar and started giving me lessons. And so, um, yeah, that was my kind of initiation into playing because he would take me around to places in the so-called Chitlin circuit. And I'd see all these blues musicians playing Johnny Guitar Watson and B.B. King and people like that. And it was just from seeing those guys and something I knew I wanted to do. She comes on like a rose But everybody knows She'll get you in touch You can look, but you better not touch Poisoned eyes
0: family was very connected in the scene.
1: Well, yeah, my uncle used to manage a club called uh, the Californian Club, and that was a major stop in that circuit. So when we grew up and got around 15, uh, we were able to play. We were kind of the house band at the Californian Club. So we played behind, uh, let's see, B.B. King, ZZ Hill, and the coasters any groups that came there we were the house band so we played the music behind them and so we weren't supposed to play there so we would pencil in these little mustaches and i would wear a hat and it was okay
0: (laughs) no you didn't
1: (laughs) yeah as long as we stayed away from the bar it was cool you know as long as we weren't around the alcohol they wouldn't get in any trouble having us play on stage so we got to meet all of these people back then. And, and, you know, they would see us first, me and Billy. But then once they heard us play, they were cool with it. And little Richard, we played with him a lot and uh, toured with him, actually. So he got to be our mentor as well.
0: Oh, my God. Was it lost on you being so young? What a wonderful opportunity this was, that you were so lucky to be around some of these people.
1: Oh, absolutely. But after a while, it just became normal. But yeah. in the beginning, of course it was. And and meeting all of these famous producer, we met Sam Cook and JW Alexander, his producer and manager, and all of these people. And we played with Bob Keene and, and we are part of, um, uh, Glenn Campbell was working with us at Delphi Studio. So we knew all of these people. And since we we're so young, they tried to keep us kind of isolated from kind of the darker parts of the business and Glenn Campbell, especially. And he uh, didn't, you know, even though he used drugs, cocaine himself, primarily, he would keep us away from that because, he, you know, we were kids. So, yeah. yeah. So it was interesting thinking about it now. It's it's really interesting.
0: Yeah. And also futile, you know, considering where
1: you are. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, it it didn't work. <laughs>
0: well, you said you got to uh, meet little Richard. Did you ever get to work with him?
1: Yes, I did. We, I toured, we went to England. Um, this would have been, I think, 62, 63. I was still in high school. And we met the Beatles. These guys, uh, they were kind of little, like little puppy dogs. And they followed him around and, and yeah. Uh, <laughs> But they they really, really loved him. So, yeah, we were on that tour and Billy, because I had to leave and come back home, but Billy played with them. And then uh, after he got back a few months later, this would have been the Hollywood Bowl appearance. We got tickets. The first time I'd ever seen a, a courier. And he came uh, with this little briefcase and he had these backstage passes and tickets for us. So we got to go backstage and see the Beatles. At the Hollywood Bowl, so that was neat. When we saw them, then we were home. We knew this was exactly what we wanted to do.
0: That was your, so to speak, rock moment. Yes, it was.
1: Thought... Then, because before that, I had intended on going to college and, and uh, becoming a lawyer. And by now, I'd be either an ambulance chaser or whatever. But anyway, that's what I planned to do. But uh, when we saw them, that was everything changed. <sighs>
0: But you had seen them play with Little Richard, and it sounds like it I did a far re- cry from what you saw at the Hollywood
1: right. Bowl. No, I didn't realize the tickets that we got were for the same guys. I didn't know those little guys that followed Richard around were the Beatles. And it didn't, you know, we never found that out until we get there. And I said, those are the little dudes that followed uh, Richard <laughs> around, and they were the biggest thing on earth, you know, so... Now you're amazing.
0: standing there in the audience and you're hearing all these screaming girls.
1: Yeah, no, we're backstage walk- with them. And oh, so we're getting to see yeah. all of the stuff go on and we're seeing them, you know, go back and forth and all the mechanisms that go into making an appearance in a show. And it was fascinating seeing how all the techs ran around getting the sound system together because these guys didn't go to sound check you know they'd have someone as a stand-in so you're watching them and making sure they had all the knobs turned correctly and the uh, levels on the guitar amps were proper so that was interesting from that aspect to see all that that required to actually put on the show that they did and then of course all of that was futile because you didn't hear a word they said or anything was just screaming. That's all you heard for the whole rest of the night.
0: That's what I heard. I read some, uh, uh, I don't know what it was, some old article in the magazine back, you know, right when they came to America and John Lennon had said at times that we could have just been, we could have just been making noises or farting and nobody would have known.
1: That's correct. They could have been, they might have been, but yeah, because they would look at each other and John was the kind of the impster, the joker, and he would look at Paul and you'd see them winking and and making faces at each other. But, you know, they... uh, it it started out, I think, to them as just they couldn't understand it any more than any of us did. And then as it progressed, they were becoming more and more and more serious with what they did. But I think initially it was something that they, they were in awe of just as much as everyone else was.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because this is a phenomenon. I it's mean, correct. Like Elvis was maybe the closest thing, but right. it was different. It was yeah. different. Yes, yeah. it was.
1: You can't anticipate that. It's just it happened. And then it just kind of snowballed, and and nobody could have predicted that it would go to the degree that it did.
0: It would become this pop culture shift,
1: right? Yes, that's what it did. It actually music in that instance changed the world because things, uh, the movement that came behind it, and the generation, the World War II baby boomer generation, were coming of age, and it was at that specific point in time that. Things just changed the sexual revolution, the civil rights movements the Vietnam War all of those things are happening at the same time right,
0: yeah. right. it's like within a year
1: yeah
0: uh, so fascinating to me and and I want to put a pin in that moment when you knew that this is what you wanted to do mm-hmm. and I want to jump back to that little Richard tour really quickly because was yeah. that a tour that Jimmy Hendricks correct
1: came yes, yeah Jimmy was basically his gopher his man friday jimmy was his chauffeur his butler and the guitar player so he was jimmy james back then and we first met jimmy at the california club he sat in with us because he he came auditioning to play with the eisley brothers and no he was playing with the eisley brothers and he auditioned to play with the ojs and he didn't get the job and so he played with us for a while behind other groups but as I said, he was Jimmy James back then. Was Jimmy,
0: he wasn't the Jimi Hendrix no, that we know. No,
1: by no means. was Because I always considered him to be a kind of a mediocre guitar player. He didn't play anything special. And when you're around people like Johnny Guitar Watson or B.B. King, hearing them play, and then hearing Jimmy at that time play, it, he was just not in the same league at all. So really? I would never... No, 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 no. He was just... You would consider him a journeyman guitar player, just an average bar band type of guitar player, because he didn't have all of the effects at that point. He didn't have the distortion and the wah-wah pedal and the chorusing and all the things that went into making Jimmy and then also the wardrobe. Because at the time I knew him, he was kind of down on his luck. And so he had his shoes he would kind of list at a 45 degree angle because the shoes would be run over. And when, you know, when the heels of your shoes get worn in a certain direction, he kind of lists in that direction. And that was him. And he also used right guard copiously because he couldn't afford to send everything to the cleaners. So you would know Jimmy was coming just by the right guard, like he could be you know, maybe half block away, and you would smell the right garden, and you'd know. But he was really a nice, nice guy, very quiet, introspective, and not at all the flamboyant person that you saw on stage. That that was just a facade. He was, you know, a quiet, intelligent man, and and not at all like the the wild man that uh, you saw on stage.
0: Right, burning guitars and all of that. Yeah,
1: yeah. I always that I always thought that was ridiculous because musicians covet and cherish their instruments and to and the who started that destroying their instruments. And you know, most musicians can't imagine that. First of all, they're damn expensive to purchase yeah. and then just paying for my amps for years. And I think to destroy it, you know, that's, that just doesn't make any sense.
0: I've always felt the same way whenever I've seen those performances. I'm like, what a waste, you know? Mm-hmm. People are are running for shards of the guitar that they're going to hold on to forever. This yeah. is from Monterey Pop in yeah. 67.
1: <laughs> yeah, I wish I had known. Yeah, I had to take <laughs> of
0: those. You have a museum.
1: <laughs> really, yes.
0: Hey guys, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Okay guys, let's get back to the interview. That's that's interesting. It sounds like things changed very drastically for Jimmy with the adoption of the new sounds and technology Mm -hmm. um, that he was able to really use to his advantage. And then, of course, the flamboyant wardrobe to go along with
1: Right, yes.
0: Wow. So so jumping back to that pin we put in uh, that moment at The Beatles, so you guys decided this is what you want to do. And how did you become love at that point?
1: Well, we at first were called the grassroots. We had seen an Eldridge Cleaver novel. novel. I think it was Up From the Grassroots. And we thought it was kind of a double entendre to name ourselves the grassroots, you know, being in the whole drug culture and everything. So we were the grassroots for quite some time. And then we were playing at a club in Hollywood called The Brave New World. And this gentleman named Lou Adler, now at the time we had no idea who Lou Adler was. Anyway, he had been drinking and he was with a young lady and he was trying to impress her. So Brian and I were outside and he came up and he said, I've heard you guys several times and I'm going to make you into the next Beatles. And he was just so effusive and what he was going to do for us. And we're kind of quizzically looking at the man. We don't know who he is. And Brian said, well, uh, why don't you talk to our manager? Because we have to go back on. And so he thought that Brian, we were basically shining him on. And he goes from being effusive to all of a sudden really pissed off. And how dare you disrespect me like this? You'll never work in this town again. I mean, he just went off on us. And about, oh, maybe two months later, uh, one of the people that came to us, to the club rather, uh, said they had heard our record. And they said, the record? We don't have a record. And they say, yes, Mr. Jones is a Dylan song. And I said, well, no, we didn't do it. And it turns out that um, Lou Adler had gone to San Francisco and he got together a bunch of studio musicians and they had co-opted our name. He knew, of course, that we were the grassroots. It's on the billboard there. We played there for months and he'd been in there. So he knew that, but he also knew that if, because we had a pretty large fan base back then. And if he knew that if, our fan base thought that it was our record; they would rush out and buy it, which they did oh, in huge know. numbers. And that's what sent—what um, the hell was that name? Uh, the, the name of the damn thing. Is it positively Fourth Street? I think that's the, that's what it is. Anyway, it's the one that do you, Mister Jones. Okay. That song, and I'm I'm forgetting the the title, the actual title of the song. But anyway, it went up the charts based on the fact that all of these kids from the valley in Hollywood and Los Angeles rushed down to the uh, stores to purchase it, thinking it was us. It was you. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, we talked to lawyers and they said, because we had the poor man's copyright, which... You basically send a registered letter to yourself, and there has the seal on it, and then the judge would open it in court, and the person who had first claim would would, uh, own the name. But then the lawyers told us we'd probably win in court, but we would piss off one of the biggest men in the business, and we'd be destroying ourselves in the process. So we'd be better off getting another name. And so we decided to find another name. And just by happenstance, serendipity, we're driving down the street and we see a billboard for love of Braziers. And I told Brian, you know, Arthur used to work there in the shipping <laughs> department. And we started laughing at, at Arthur and, you know, it having a joke at his expense. And then Brian said, wow, that would be a great name for a group. And right there, wow. we decided we would be yes. Love. And, uh, yes. L O V E. Yes. It used to be Love Braziers was L U V. And so we decided, we talked about it and said it would be L O V E, of course, with a, nothing in front of it, just plain Love. And that uh, we were going to trademark and, and get our name properly and legal so that nobody could take it from us. So we did and became Love. Wow.
0: Great that was name.
1: A, yeah, much better name than the yeah. grassroots, anyway. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Would you, did you ever have any subsequent conversations with Lou about this?
1: No, he, yeah. he kind of turns and goes. But we did speak with people in the group and they told us that, yeah, he came up with that name. And then we knew there was a group that we'd heard of called the grassroots. And he said, "Never mind, I, I've worked it out with it." Of course he'd never spoken to us, but he knew also that we were kids and didn't have the wherewithal really to fight in court. And as I said, even if we had, uh, it would have been a fool's errand to go against one, of you know, somebody so powerful in the industry. So we just let it go. And it turned out to our advantage because uh, it's a much, much better name. and has a much cooler cachet to it than grassroots.
0: Oh, heck yeah. And this yeah. is what, 1965 at this yes, point? Yes, 1965. Oh, yeah. 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 Perfect timing.
1: Yes, it was. So that was serendipity. Serendipity kind of weaves its way throughout our story because things happened uh, that um that were just so interesting and just so unusual that it, it was just like it was destined to be that way
0: yeah and it was mm-hmm.
1: yeah seems so we're still here almost 60 done. years later we're still 55 years later we're still at it
0: can you believe it i no. mean will there ever be a moment when you when that actually sets in
1: and I don't think it ever will, because I think about it and, wow, that's just amazing, especially when we tour and we go to England and then people are chanting my name and there's huge crowds of people. And I'm looking at them and I'm just, you know, just amazed by that. Um, and it's a younger generation because most people from my generation are transitioning or getting too old to go to tours. But every now and then we'll see some people from back in the day, but mostly it's a whole different generation. And so we somehow appeal to them, which is, you know, amazing to me. And on one hand, but not so on the other, because you look at the choices they have, and I think the music from back then. You know, I, I don't want to be to get myself into trouble, but the the music of today, especially hip hop, and some of the uh, other music that uh, techno, especially, yeah, just to me is just noise you know that's just what it is to me i know i know some people may not like hearing that but that's what i hear and, and uh, music is in the ear of the beholder and what i behold coming from some of today's music is just like static noise that i would like to get away from as quickly as possible because it's bothering my ears you know like we saw gorillas the other night now they were a fantastic group yeah. We loved seeing them, but it was so loud and so noisy. And so it's like techno rap, I think. So it had both of the, the genres that I'm not really that fond on together. And um, anyway, as nope, I said I'm before, right there with you. <laughs> okay,
0: I'm right there with you. That's why I have this podcast. That's why I'm talking to people like yeah. you, because yeah. I have an affinity for this music, you know, and it, and it fascinates me to to hear the backstories but I also have to believe that when you are out there you are performing um, across the world uh, far from LA and you have generations of people coming to see you that's got to be incredibly satisfying.
1: Yes it is and to remain relevant at this point in time is just amazing to me so I just kind of I'm in awe of the fact that it's still going on so I can't explain it and don't understand it so.
0: Yeah, Uh,
1: and don't just go with it. That's right. I'm going to go with the (laughs) flow. At my house, I've got no shackles. You can come and look if you want to. Through the halls, you'll see the mantles Where the light shines dim all around you And the streets are paved with gold And if someone asks you, you can call my name
0: So, L.A. back then, especially the Sunset Strip, we're talking 1965, there's like probably 25 clubs within that 1.6-mile radius, mm-hmm. yes, or whatever yes. it is. So if you made a name in that area back then, I mean, you really were—you really made a name for yourself, period.
1: Yes, you did.
0: So many venues, so many options, mm-hmm. so many bands.
1: And you could support yourself on what a musician earned just playing clubs back then. Because that's there were so many clubs and so many people coming to this one small area on the Strip. And we played um, basically six nights a week. And then on Sundays, we played matinee. So we were playing every day. And we played four sets, so they would empty the club out and bring in a new crowd after each set. So we would play with uh, four different crowds a night, um, six nights a week, and the matinees on Sunday. And we did that for the longest time. So we, you establish a name for yourself and you establish a following. So it's like the Birds, the Buffalo Springfield, the Doors, and uh, Iron Butterfly. We were all playing these clubs. And you establish a following, and that follows you into your recording career, and it's a really huge boost, you know, because your records will automatically just start selling just from the fact from this small area, and that gets you on the charts, and you know, once you're on the charts it's kind of like a snowball effect. Other people buy the record and other radio stations pick it up because it's hot in this area. So they it, uh, they start playing it and it becomes hot there as well. So yeah, this was the place that made everybody. And it was, you know, a, a point in time that I don't think can ever occur again because you had all of those things happening at the same time as I mentioned before, so. Right.
0: And the music industry's changed. It's just not set up the same way. Yeah, so. No, it's
1: not. It's, you got corporate people. Back then you had people that were interested in the music for the sake of music. And we never intended or thought we would get rich playing music, just wanted to earn a living. But everybody did the very best that they could. And we were each trying to outdo the other. You yeah. know, there was this friendly, competitive nature. And you hear the uh, Doors had something, so you wanted to do something better and that's just how people felt and it wasn't about the money it was about the music
0: right and were you all playing essentially like musical clubs i mean jumping from like musical chairs essentially mm-hmm. you mentioned brave new world but you played a kind of all over right yes we did yeah, and one so
1: one did thing. they we were just we would play at the whiskey Gogo go go one night and then the Doors would be there or we'd play actually a couple of weeks and then the Doors would play there and then Iron Butterfly or the Buffalo Springfield. Yeah, all of these groups, we lived on the same street next door to each other. So I can name, for example, Janice Joplin, um, the Birds, the Doors, Iron Butterfly, um, Buffalo Springfield, all of us lived right next to each other.
0: Right? In Laurel Canyon. In Laurel
1: Canyon, yeah. We're within a few houses of each other. Yeah.
0: And so you were all visiting each other. You were all sharing music, sharing um, each, you know, other. Lyrics each other, lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: don't well, yes, to say
0: it, Johnny, but you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, because in the scene from the clubs, we'd go from the clubs and go to somebody's house, and the scene would continue. And all the young ladies that would be at the clubs would now be at one of those houses. And we were kids and that revolution was happening. So of course it didn't, it was just a natural thing. It was not something that, because you most of the times didn't even know each other's name. Well, they knew our names, but didn't necessarily know theirs. And it wasn't like it was anybody was being used or anything. It was just young people experiencing life, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: And how long were you in Laurel Canyon? Because I know you guys then moved to the castle in Los Feliz.
1: Yeah, and then we moved back to Laurel Canyon. So off and on wow. there, several years. But yeah, the castle was a whole other place. You know, this humongous, we called it a castle, but it was kind of, it was an estate that Norma Talmadge owned. She was a silent screen actress and she moved to Paris. And a friend of Brian's father managed the property and it was becoming derelict because it was, a humongous place and it had guest quarters and all of these grounds and all of that. And so all we had to do was basically pay the taxes, which Mm -hmm. back then were not nearly as much as they would be now because the place, I think Vera Wang has restored it, and it's like $15 million. But when we had it, it was offered to us for $50,000. And my dad said, "Ah, it's too much work. You don't want this because the place was. You know, we each had little wings of it that had suites of uh, apartments in it, but it uh was kind of funky and, and uh it it could have used a bit of work, but yeah, uh, so it's on YouTube if people ever want to see it. It's called the castle and they can go and see it and, and see Arthur giving the grand tour, but yeah. You have to remember what Brian, excuse me, what Arthur is showing you is not the place we lived in because this is a gilded place It has all these fine Persian rugs and beautiful. Th- it didn't look like that when we lived.
0: It was a little, little run down. <laughs> yeah, rundown, it, was, I mean, it,
1: just... it was rough. It was a hippie pad. We had the mattresses on the floor and beads hanging instead of curtains. That's how it looked. But it was hey, it was to us. It, it was the Taj Mahal. It was our house. We lived there. And um, everybody coveted there. So everybody that came to play in Los Angeles with all of the people, Jefferson Airplane, Big Brother, they would come and stay there with us.
0: They'd stay um, there with you guys. Yes,
1: yes, because it had almost 90 rooms, I think, on all. So there was enough room for everybody.
0: Oh my God. <laughs> so if those walls could talk.
1: Yeah, I, I think we'd all be in jail if they <laughs> could. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is so great. I think I've walked by it a couple of times. Yeah, um, it's
1: a neat place. You know, she does a lot of tours now because of the fact that Jimmy stayed and jazz Joplin stayed there with us. So uh, they have that sort of part of the rock and roll history tour and people will go by and look at it.
0: Yeah, that is so great. And I wasn't aware that you moved back to Laurel Canyon and that you were in such close proximity. I knew that maybe you had stayed with Frank Zappa for a while. No, he
1: was right down the street. He was like two doors down from me. Yeah, yeah. so we knew each other. And he was the guy that told us and warned us to stay away from drugs. because He was a teetotaler. He didn't drugs or alcohol. And nobody listened to to Frank. (laughs) Everybody thought that we knew more than he did because he was older than us. And you know, so we would kind of poo-poo him and, and, you know, shined him on basically. And so everybody had to experiment and find out for themselves what he knew. And I think how much life, how this country would be different if those people, if we had lift, listened to him because there were Jimi Hendrix, Morrison, Janis Joplin, Henry Vestine, so many people would still be here and they still would contribute to you know, the, uh, the culture and to music. And things would be quite different musically, I think, had we listened to Frank Zappa, he proved prescient.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, some of those lessons, right? We have to learn by doing.
1: Yes, yes. We were kids. Kids have to be kids and learn their own way. And so we learned. Well. I've seen you walking. Have you been there before? Walk down your doorsteps. You'll take some more steps. What did you take them for? There's a private in my boat, and he wears this
0: instead of medals on his coat. There's a chicken. In my... I, I want to talk to you about the whisking. Um, Because when you started playing there, I know there was a reluctance.
1: Yeah, because they these guys were uh, cops from Chicago and they were kind of shady cops from Chicago. And they came there and they opened this nightclub and they had the reputations for not paying you and threatening you when you went to get paid. And so uh, Ronnie Heron, now Ronnie Mellon, she married into the Chase family, the Chase banking family. But then she was Ronnie Heron. And she was uh, the booker and and she worked there at the club and she booked us and guaranteed that we'd get paid. She said, I'll pay you myself if uh, you have any problems. So we played there for two weeks and we actually got paid and the check didn't bounce. And so (laughs) that happened. And we told everybody else that, yeah, this is cool. They actually will pay you and it's cool. And they turned out to be very, very nice. We, knew them for until Mario just passed recently. Well, a a year or so ago, but uh, we knew them for all those years and they were good people. And uh, they booked just about everybody who ever played in in Hollywood or that were on the charts at the whiskey. It became the end spot. And uh, as I said, everybody got paid. So it, it worked out.
0: And in terms of Ronnie Heron, was it you guys or was it her? That essentially discovered the doors next door at the London Fog and brought them over.
1: Well, we knew the doors because we all knew each other. So Morrison used to get drunk and just fall asleep in my doorway. I'd come out and stumble over him. So we—he was—he had a problem with drink.
0: <laughs> but in your doorway, was yeah. he knocking on the door trying to get in, or
1: no, that was just he a wanted spotlight. to be
0: close to you? It was
1: kind <laughs> of a little alcove, yeah. He wanted to be like us, that was the thing that he wanted more than anything. He'd said that many times, but uh, he would sleep in the alcove uh, leading up to the door. And we had been offered a tremendous sum of money to uh switch record companies to go to MCA, and uh-huh. we knew. Electra was not going to let us go because we were their ticket into the game. You know, every they had, that was a huge cashier that they had love. And so they could sign other people on the strength of that. And so they were not going to let us go under any circumstance, but we thought we knew that when Jim was on his, uh, on his game and performing the way he should and could, that these guys were a, a force to be reckoned with. They were a, even though they sounded like a lounge act to us because they didn't have a base. He just had this magnetism that you could see. And you could see all of these young girls there standing up, looking at him. And so we thought, why don't we hook Electra up with the doors? And so we did, because Jim had been asking us you know, for months and months to introduce him and nobody wanted to vouch for him because we knew that he was unpredictable. But we finally did. And Jack Holtzman came from New York to see them. And Jim was, of course, drunk and he hated them. And he just you know, got pissed off at us for even bringing him here to see them. And wasting so, his time. Yeah, wasting his time. So uh, we got him to come back again. He was here for something. He came back and saw him the second time and hated them even more. So a few months go by and he's here and we're doing an album. Um, the cop of our second album. And he introduces us to a gentleman named Paul Rothschild. Now we knew nothing about Paul Rothschild, only that he had just gotten out of prison for selling grass. And so to us, that was cool. So we hired him on the strength of that. And he uh, took Jack Holtzman on our, our recommendation to see The Doors the third time and Jack just said, I want you to see these guys yourself and so we can just stop having us come down here and look at them. And this time they were playing with the Iron Butterfly so the competitiveness took over. Jim wasn't drunk, he was in his element and he put on a clinic and they saw what we saw. All of these young girls are in there in awe of him. And um, so, Ronnie Heron introduced them to the door. She was the one that she was supposed to get a percentage, of course, for making the introduction. But um, as would happen in the record business, those details were forgotten. So I think she had to go to court and sue them. But anyway, she introduced them and um, the door signed with them. And uh, Paul Rothschild was their producer. And so as we're doing the couple, uh, they're recording their first album uh, at Sunset Sound.
0: Wow. And here, here's my question. Hearing this story in the times that you brought Jack Holzman to see them, did you ever go to Jim and say, hey, buddy, we're trying to help you out here. You've yes. asked to be introduced. Maybe clean it up a little bit. Tonight.
1: Yes. yes. But when he was a real, real died in the wool alcoholic, I mean, he couldn't help himself. and. He probably had a couple of fifths of something every single day of his life until he died. And yeah. so there you could tell him, you could talk to him. When you're sitting there talking to him before he started, he's perfectly fine and normal and rational and a very intelligent man. But by 11 o'clock at night, I mean, he's just, <laughs> you know, he's totally blithered. And yeah. he, the, the group would have eventually, they, because they were on the verge of breaking up at that point. So had Electra not signed them, there would have been no doors. So um, it was just that, that because of the fact that the Iron Butterfly were playing on the same bill, and it's just pride, ego, whatever, just caused him to come down and do it properly. I don't think he even knew at that point that the record company was coming there because I think it was a surprise to us that they would come back the third time. But this time, as I said, I brought uh, brought Paul Rothschild with him and Paul could immediately see what we had been telling them. Mm.
0: And the minute that they saw what you had been telling them, they had that swagger, you thought, okay, we're out. We're we're, we're on to bigger and better.
1: That's what we thought because, you see, Electro Records was a new company. Basically, they were a folk label. And we signed with them initially because they were the only, we had uh, entreaties from Capitol, uh, Columbia, DECA, uh, and Warner Brothers to sign. But none of them would allow us to own the publishing and own our masters. And Electra did. They said, you can own the publishing. So we did own the publishing to our stuff. Which was rare back then, but I'd learned that from Little Richard. He would kind of schooled it into me that you should own your own music. Don't ever let them take your music from you, because he had gone through that, where all these songs that he wrote, somebody else put their names next to his, or they got most of the money, and you know he'd get a new car or something and uh, and not get paid. So he kind of drummed that into me, and so you know. I paid attention to him. He was someone that I respected so much that I paid attention to him. And so we kept the publishing. And that was the reason we signed with this unknown folk label, and Elektra. Um, MCA, on the other hand, was a huge company that could get us into the, all of the record stores where Electra had problems initially getting our records into all of the record stores. So I think our first couple of records went to the 30s or I think one went as high as the 20s on the charts, but it couldn't go any further because they weren't, their distributorship wasn't able to get our records into places in the Mid-America and the South, which MCA could because they had all the pool and the money and the resources to do that. Now, of course, Electra, once the doors had a huge hit All of those things opened up for them and they were able to get those records because they uh, had a kind of a distributorship deal with a larger record company to get them into. I think it was the the MI that Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. and they were able to get the records, especially overseas where we had problems, even though we had a humongous following in Europe. Uh, many times they couldn't get our records you know they had to order them by mail or something rather than them being in in the, uh, the record store so um anyway that was what we thought and nothing happened except you know we ended up kind of on the back burner because the money and resources that would be spent to promote love was now being used to support and promote the doors so their tours and getting on ed sullivan and all of those things were just you know we were on the back burner so we we basically we played you know dick clark and american bandstand and where the action is and local shows but we didn't get the huge national breakout and that was because we had basically shot ourselves in the foot by you know um insisting that they sign the doors who had now become humongous, you know, and of course, they're business people and they know where the money is now, you know, or actually is, um, is waiting for them. In other words, because, you know, initially, of course, they're not making a huge sum. So they have to borrow money against the doors and, you know, they're not gonna spend that money on us. So anyway, we made a childish kid's decision, thinking that, you know, this kind of wishful thinking, and it didn't work out. That's, that's the best way I can put it.
0: Sure, sure. If you had to do it over, though, would you have gone with another label that didn't uh, grant the uh, the publishing rights? No,
1: no, no. I would. We would have not introduced them to the doors, even though they were our friends and we loved them and were yeah. really proud of their success. It was a poor business decision. Friendship wise, it was great, but business wise, it was a dumb decision.
0: Yeah. Uh, Again, (laughs) you learn by doing, right? That's
1: correct, yes.
0: And, and how did you feel about Jim? I always love talking to people that knew him personally and, and what their real take was.
1: He became uh, different as the fame. He he became kind of, well, actually the first, when we got him to sign with, with Electra, the first thing they did, or Jim did, was to go in and trash the president's office. I mean, that's the kind of respect he showed us after doing it. But we realized he couldn't help himself. So he goes in the company's pres- president's office and just totally destroys it. That was his, their, their, uh, kind of his opening salvo to let them know that.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, a glimpse of what was to come.
1: That's correct. And he was a handful. He just, I think the drug, the, the drink of it, uh had just kind of affected his mind to the point that he he could not help himself and i don't think it would have been possible for him to clean up i think he was so because he had been an alcoholic for so long that i don't think there was any hope of him changing because that was who he was you know and he had this thing of shocking people you know he would just go to a friend's house and put his cigarette on on their rug or do crazy stuff like that or drop his pants and you know go into a, a room full of people and you know uh, just be completely insensitive and rude uh. but th- he just did that because he thought that was how a rock musician was supposed to act you know i guess just you know, you saw all of the stuff that later musicians were doing it like trashing hotel rooms and doing all that crap. I think he just thought that was you know, what he was supposed to do. That's too bad. Well, yeah, it's too bad. And you know the thing that I never understand is we all work very hard to get to the point where we're successful and drawing large audiences and making money. So why would you destroy that? Why after finally making it, which most of us ended up doing. And that's something that a psychologist could probably make a fortune if he could figure it out. Oh, y'all did the same thing. We got as high as we could to destroy everything that we'd worked all of that time to build. Yeah. And it's, it is. It's really, it's baffling to think you finally get it. You've got the brass ring and what do you do? You do everything you can to tear that brass ring into pieces
0: throw it away, yeah, throw it it, away. you yeah. feel like you don't deserve it or something I think yeah.
1: maybe that is you know you, you think of yourself as a fraud or something because there are other people you know that are going off to that awful war and dying you're getting notices that friends are dying and here you're, you're living the life Riley, and you kind of you know guilt is yeah. kind of uh, there yeah
0: yeah, why? Why me? And that?
1: that's, that's yeah. correct. Because it very easily could have been just a couple of different decisions. You know, could have changed everything around, and you could be over there in the godforsaken jungle rather than them. Oh, yeah. yeah, especially back then, it's a very scary yeah, job, that yeah. Because they were just coming and picking you up. We know friends that went down one day, and the next day they were being shipped over to Vietnam. You know, and so we were just fortunate that. Our numbers came up at a time when we could play them because we learned the the, the game. You go down and you pretend to be just as ignorant and, and recalcitrant and uncooperative as you can be. You make sure you don't take a bath for a couple of weeks before going in there. So you're repulsive and <laughs> oh, they bad. just want you away. They want you out of there. So you get, you know, <laughs> that's how we all did it because we all had, David Crosby had told us because he found out from someone else that that's what to do. And that's what we did. They would give you directions. You go over here and you would end up going over there or you would pretend you can't hear them. You would do whatever it is to make them realize that, that this person just is not amenable to being in services. So um, yeah. they would send us home. And so that's how we got out. But then later on, they they got on to it. And they realized that so many of these people from Hollywood come down and they're playing, basically doing the same thing, the same act. And they realized that's what it was. It was an act, a planned act to get out of going. So they, that was no longer uh, appropriate. And so they, they allowed people even that were as you know, horrible as we were, they were still taking them. At that point, they needed bodies and they didn't care. They would take anybody. Wild Man Fisher, I think, if you know who he is, and Wild was, you know, anyway, he was um, he was on the bus, and I think he got down there, and before he got out of basic training, they shipped him back because they realized he was the real deal. He was actually a schizophrenic. We were pretending to be he actually actually was.
0: (laughs) He actually was that person you did not want to be in the trenches with. (laughs)
1: That's correct.
0: (laughs) Oh, man. Well, so you're all right. So you got out scot-free. You're back in L.A. You did DiCapo, and then now you're planning for Forever Changes. Correct. Talk to me about the making of that album, because when I listen to Forever Changes, I mean, obviously, I'm echoing the sentiments and the thoughts that everybody else have been saying for the last however many decades. That album is beyond exceptional. And every song is so different. What what went into that?
1: The word serendipity, I used that, and that again was how that, because the album initially was a totally different album. Um, we were kind of getting pissed off, Brian and I, because the Arthur. Was a wonderful wordsmith and poet, but he was not very much of a musician, not very good at all. And he didn't play on any of our stuff. So basically, Brian and I and Kenny, we're writing the music to all of these songs, and we're not getting the recognition that we know that we deserve for that. So we're getting pissed off. So finally uh we work it out, we're gonna do a double album, Forever Changes. So Brian would have one side for his material. I'd have one side and Arthur would have the two sides of uh, the record. So that's what we worked towards. So we worked almost a year on these songs and we had great songs ready to go. And we get to the studio and we find out at the very last minute that Electra Records said it was too expensive to do a double album and that we do the other part later. Uh, so it'd be a, a totally different album. And there was just, you know, really, really, really hard feelings. And Brian staged a kind of a mutiny. You know? He just wouldn't play Arthur's songs that way, uh, the way he had normally played them. So we go to the studio the first time and it's just a mess, you know, because it doesn't sound like us. We are all pissed off. And so we ended up uh, canceling the rest of the sessions. We come back and Neil Young is there as a producer now. Neil Young is our friend. We hang with him, get high with him. There's no way in hell we're going to listen to Neil Young as a producer. So we get upset again and walk out. But this time we're walking out basically laughing because it, to us, it was why of all people would they bring Neil Young? And Bruce Botnick was also friends with Neil. And at that time, Neil was um, on the verge of being kicked out of his apartment because he was flat broke. And so Bruce Botnick thought that he, for producing a couple of songs, he would get a producer's percentage. And of course, as I said, we were having none of that. And so um, I think he was paid for one day for coming in, but he produced nothing. And then we um, were on the verge of just walking away from the project totally. And then um, Electra kind of wiser minds prevailed. You know, as I said, they had brought in studio musicians to try to do that. So they brought in the Wrecking Crew and the Wrecking Crew played on one or two songs. And then they realized that these guys are fantastic musicians, but they don't sound like us. And so they were going to just cancel the project altogether. And then we had a talk and decided, is this how we want to go out? Do we just want to just fizzle like this? And so we decided that we would go back into the studio and play the songs properly, which we did, and work out all of the other problems later. And um, we did that. And the record just you know, flowed smoothly from there. We finished it in a few days. And,
0: Can you imagine if you didn't
1: do the record? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, but then the seeds for our ultimate demise were sown at that point because um, Brian and and Jack Holtzman had worked out a deal surreptitiously. We didn't know that he had worked out a deal with Brian to do a solo project. Now, Brian, of course, is going to stay with the group, but he was going to get to do his record, the one that was supposed to be part of Forever Changes, now called If You Believe In, he was going to get to do it separately. Now, none of us knew that. And um, so Brian calls me and tells me uh, that he'd worked out this deal. And I said, You mean while we were on tour in New York and Jack is winding us and dining us, you work out a deal with him, but you don't tell us. And yeah, that's how it happened. So I said, Let's go and tell Arthur the good news. And I knew exactly what was happening. And so we went over to Arthur's house, and Arthur said, oh, man, that's fantastic, Brian. I'm so happy for you. You're fired. And so Brian was fired immediately, and that was basically that. And we went our separate ways for a couple of months. We decided, or Arthur realized that it wasn't happening because uh, he would go to places and play, and instead of having lines around the corner, he was barely able to get you know 20 people to show up. So he realized that now it wasn't just him, that it was in fact a group. And so he invited us all to come back together and we worked it out and signed agreements with each other about payment and all of that. And except for Brian, he refused to come back. So we played a few gigs. We played the Santa Monica Civic and a few others. And it just wasn't the same without Brian. He just, he had this look and this kind of persona that fit the group. And without him, it was a different group. So we decided at that point to go our separate ways uh, for real. And that's basically how it ended just like that over something that happened that wasn't really that big a deal because if he had talked to us and said, yeah, uh, Jackson, I can do my project as a separate project and you can do yours as a separate project rather than the, uh, the Forever Changes being a double album. Had we known that and talked it out, it would have worked out fine. But when you go behind each other's backs and do things like he did, the bond of trust is gone. And so um, it just, that was enough. We couldn't work it out, you know, and it was over. We had been friends, had, you know, wore each other's clothes because we were the same size, basically. so we shared clothing, lived in the same house. We shared friends, girls. And uh, you just don't do that to your friends. You don't go behind their backs and work out a deal without telling them. So anyway, we just, we never could come to a meeting of the minds and we tried several times to put Humpty Dumpty back together, but you know, it was irretrievably broken. So that Mm -hmm. uh, until Arthur and I decided when Arthur got out of jail for, or prison actually for brandishing a firearm, Uh, That was sometime in the 90s. Um, Well, um, I'll go back. We uh, were offered a really huge sum of money by Rhino Records. They did a box set, love box set, to go on tour. So we all agreed to get back together and tour. And then unbeknownst to us, Arthur had this thing for brandishing a weapon. And he was... um, it was supposed to be nothing because um, friends in our group, especially one of our these now a, a, a federal, uh, excuse me, a, a Superior Court judge. But at the time, he had connections and he could have helped him to get a proper attorney. And that would have gone away because it turned out to be really uh, the case was overturned on appeal because he should never have been convicted in the first place. But it took six years of his life before it finally was. Oh, uh, and then we get together we're going to tour and then uh as i said arthur's gone and then we talk about it again and then Brian is giving an interview talking to someone about it and he just drops dead that was in christmas day uh, christmas eve excuse me in uh 99
0: he's talking to somebody about it and then literally drops
1: dead, drops dead. yeah it's like a kind of like a slapstick comedy routine where you drop and fall in your plate of food basically that's what he did and brian was known for his sense of humor so i mean (laughs) my interviewer thought he was playing but he obviously wasn't he had gained a little weight but he didn't he was healthy and bouncy and laughing and it's just his heart gave out.
0: but you still decided to press on with arthur
1: yes when arthur i got out um these people in a group called Baby Lemonade, they had known our music and had been playing our music for years. And so they played it as well, if not better than we did actually. And so um, we got together with them and um, we had strings and horns and we, we reproduced uh, the Forever Changes album on stage flawlessly. And if you listen to it, it's really hard to tell the difference from the album to the, the live concerts. And we went everywhere doing that until Arthur passed. And it was his wish as well as mine that we continue. So we continue doing it and we tour all of the world still. And um, we just came back from the UK and Scotland and Ireland and um, London. We played in Liverpool and we will be going back next year to, to finish the tour. Johnny, that's incredible. Yes, it is and we played just before the pandemic and uh, Sefton Park in Liverpool, and we had over 87,000 people showed up. So, what? yeah. So we have a huge crowd of young folks that have discovered love.
0: I mean, that's gotta be just the best feeling. We, we, you know, we talked about it a little bit in the beginning, yes. but like, I mean, to draw a crowd like that, are you gonna be in LA anytime soon?
1: Yes, we will be. Well, we will be playing in Costa Mesa. I think that next month we'll be playing at a club in Costa Mesa. And then we'll be going back up to San Francisco the first of the year. We'll be playing at the chapel. We played there a bunch of times. It's a huge venue. I think it used to be a church. And they block off the street during COVID, actually. That was just when COVID was ending. And they put the tables in the street so that people could be distanced from each other.
0: I love that. Shut well, if you're p- playing anywhere near L.A., Costa Mesa is close enough. I'm going to come see you guys. Cool. That will be an absolute trip. And what are some of the favorite songs that you love or, or the songs that really garner, you know, a reaction from the audience when you're out there?
1: Well, they like you set the scene most, I think, because it has so many changes and such a, a pretty song. But my favorite would be the rock songs, Like a House is Not a Motel and "Your Mind and We Belong Together because I have really long guitar solos, and and I have fun playing them. So (laughs) a guitar player in me comes out, and I get to stretch out, and that's fun.
0: Johnny, what a life you've led.
1: Yep, it's been fun.
0: 60 years, that's a pretty good run. I mean, that's right up there with the Stones.
1: Yep, that's a pretty good run. (laughs) Yep, doing it since we were kids and still doing it. So it's amazing, and I'm in awe of the fact that people will – you know, spend their money and come out to, even during the pandemic when it was, as I said, toward the end of the, the last year. And they came out and people come wearing their masks and so they show their vaccination cards and you know just to come and see our group play, which is just amazing. You know, I I don't understand it. it. It's you know kind of baffles me. But you know I know the music is good, but there's something else happening which you know will have to be defined by someone other than myself because I just don't know.
0: Well, and I think during the pandemic, we felt so separated from each other and music has always been the great unifier. So if you're going to brave the crowds, I can't think of a better way to do it than walking into a room and, you know, communing with people who feel the same way about something that you
1: do. Absolutely.
0: But like I said, I'll be there. I'd love to see you guys. That'd be so great. I'm, I'm so glad you came on. You are a wealth of stories.
1: Uh, it's been my pleasure. And to paraphrase Jerry Garcia, it has been a long, strange trip. And I hope it continues for a while. Times of wait patiently for you, and you do just what you choose to do, and I will be alone again tonight, my dear.
0: Ah, uh, that was Alone Again, or I love that song. Johnny, thank you so much for coming on My Rock Moment. And guys, I put a link to Baby Lemonade's website in the show notes so that you can stay tuned for any upcoming show dates and you can see Johnny perform live. And I also posted a YouTube video link that provides a tour of the castle in Los Feliz that Johnny was talking about where love once lived. It's all spruced up now, but oh my gosh, what an incredible property. All right, so as always, don't forget to rate on Spotify, subscribe on Apple, and then follow me at LA Woman Rocks on Instagram. We will see you at the next episode, and in the meantime, guys, have a happy, happy holiday.